Let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and find them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you first had. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're starting a new series uh, from the book of Revelation, and we're taking uh, kind of three, ch- uh, two chapters, chapters two and three of the book of Revelation to study uh, something particular that happens in there, uh, these letters from Jesus to these seven churches. Um, but before we begin, um, I used to own a business, I wasn't very good at it, um, didn't make any money. Um, John was my partner in that, uh, maybe that's why we didn't make any money. Uh, we were not very good at it. We had a lot of good fun, but we didn't make any money. And um, But one something I learned after that, and probably should have paid attention to during that, was that one thing that any good business does is market research, right? Especially if you're in retail. Um, so, and one of the ways that retailers will do this, they'll hire mystery shoppers. And mystery shoppers, basically, you probably know what mystery shoppers are. I had never heard of this concept until fairly recently, and now I kind of want to be one. Um, but you basically get paid to go into a shop or a restaurant and, and experience or buy. So it might be a restaurant, you go get to have a meal there, and you take notes on uh, what you had or what you bought, how the staff were, all that kind of stuff. And then you report back, and this is how they get feedback. Now, did you know uh, that regrettably... There is such a thing as mystery worshippers. Have you ever heard of this? Please do not go to this website. I won't even tell you what it is because uh, it's. Cr- it, if you're in like me, you'll probably laugh at first and then just get really mad <laughs> about stuff. And so these are people who will go to different churches. If you're a mystery worshipper here this morning, you're very welcome. <laughs> I did not think of that. Don't think of that. Wouldn't that be ironic? Wouldn't it? That'd be funny. Mystery worshippers are great. Here's some of the in-depth questions they ask. Okay? How was the building? Was your pew comfortable? How would you describe the pre-service atmosphere? What musical instruments were played? Did anything distract you? Uh, Okay, one of my favorites here. Was the worship stiff upper lip? Happy clappy or what? I don't know how you describe that. Um, exactly how was the sermon? Everyone said too long. Um, on a scale of one to ten, how good was the preacher? Eleven, obviously. Which part of the sermon? Come on, this is good. They're really getting into the depth of stuff here. Which part of the service was like being in heaven? How, how do you answer that? And what? And this is true. This is a quote from the website. Which part of which part was like being in or the other place? Uh, how would you describe the after-service coffee? In our case, I guess, the before-service coffee. Really, the sort of things you want to know when you're trying to find a new church. Um, or if you're just a critical person with too much time in your hands, I don't know. Um, but joking aside, I wonder what Jesus would think if he walked into our church. I wonder what Jesus would think if he went to, along to one of our missional communities and saw us the way we interact with each other. 
Um, how would he evaluate us? Because in a way, that's what our new series uh, is about, right? Jesus writes these letters, a letter, seven letters to seven churches. Um, and, and he knows his churches. He sees what's going on. Um, he, knows, he shows them what's good, and he shows them what's bad, and he gives them encouragement how to fix it. Um, and these seven letters are written by Jesus to real historic churches. Okay, I don't know when... Uh, okay, I'll come to that in a second. I've got a map that Tim did for me, and I'm going to throw it up, but I'll do that in a second. They're a message from God through Jesus, given to John by an angel. So it goes, God, Jesus, angel, John, to the churches. That's the, the kind of chain of command. And, and this, these letters go out to these churches. So this is the same John who, uh, I don't know if you remember, way back in October and November, we studied uh, the, le- the, the, the first letter of John, and he was writing to these churches, the churches in Asia. Uh, and this is the same churches that he's writing to again. John had a vested interest in, uh, he pastored one of these churches, he had a vested interest in these churches in a really difficult place. And this is John, who uh, is a, was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was a disciple. He refers to himself as the, 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 the disciple that Jesus loved. And I was chatting with James earlier this week, and he pointed out this great thing, that, is, that John doesn't even count himself as he describes himself. He's like, no, no, I'm the person that Jesus loves. Isn't that amazing? Imagine we describe ourselves that way. And by this stage, John's pretty old. This is maybe like uh, 50 or so years after Jesus um, and John has been exiled to this island of Patmos, which is this wee island of, we'll see it in the map in a second, this wee island between Greece and Turkey. Um, basically what had happened was uh, the emperor Domitian at the time, he was, uh, I guess, had heard that John was causing an upset. He was having such an effect on the Christians there that, that, that they didn't like it because the emperor wanted worship for himself and he was telling people to worship Jesus instead. So he's exiled to this island this tiny island, and it's there that he gets, uh, he writes the book of Revelation. God gives him this vision of things that are to come to pass. And in the coming weeks, we're going to explore a little bit more of, of what Revelation is. Um, hopefully, we're going to come back and study the whole book of Revelation at some point not in the not-too-distant future. Um, but for today, we don't have time to go into too much detail. But basically, John's on this island, and God gives him this vision of things that are going to come to pass. He gets this big picture of the future. Um, and so the amazing thing is that even when, when John's being persecuted, God is in control, right? God needed him to go to Patmos so that he could, have, he could give him this vision. Uh, so we can have the map up, uh, Tim. Uh, so the black bits of the land, and, and you have Turkey over here. Asia, as it's called in the Bible, is modern-day Turkey. There's the island of Patmos in the sea. And then you have these seven churches, and these are seven real places. You can still go to these places and, and, and see uh, these ancient cities. Some of them have different names now, but, but they're all still there in, in, in their ruined form, I guess. Um, and these letters were delivered to each one of these, these uh, churches in each one of these cities. And what's really cool about this, it's, it's the, the postal route, okay? The way that it's listed in, in the Bible, each one, it's the way the postman would have gone. So the postman, or the you know, first century equivalent, would have went to Ephesus, then to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, and round in this kind of clockwise direction. And so the way we read these letters in the Bible, uh, it, it's, Jesus made it easy for the postman. It's easy for us to follow. So that's kind of where we are. Um, and each of these historic real churches, just like you and me, it was a church like this. They had real issues going on. They're facing trial, right? They're facing trial in the form of persecution. And we're going to get into that in more detail in a minute. And then they're, they're facing temptation because whenever our faith is tried, there's always a temptation to give in, isn't there? 
here he is, the man of the hour. Uh, we're always, when we have trial, we're, we're, we're tempted to give in. And it's into this context that Jesus writes to these churches. And he gives them words of warning. And he gives them words of comfort. But the amazing thing is, he's not just writing to those churches. He's writing to the church. He's writing to all churches. At the end of each letter, Jesus finishes by saying, let him, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we can take this as the, the word of God directly to us this morning. And so uh, what we're, one of the things we're going to see, and you guys are going to be really familiar with this by the end of the summer, is each of the letters has a similar structure. And so we're just going to use the same outline every week as we study these. Firstly, it, each letter starts with an introduction, and it's an authoritative, authoritative introduction. So it's an introduction that shows the authority of Jesus. This is not the Jesus who, who is dying on the cross. This is the resurrected, powerful Jesus who's come to judge the earth. This is the Jesus who, in, in chapter 1 of Revelation, it says, uh, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. This is the Jesus who's on the side of the church, and he introduces himself this way. And after the introduction, there's an evaluation. It's an all-knowing evaluation. And we're going to unpack these as we go through the weeks. An all-knowing evaluation. Jesus knows his church. And he evaluates them, and he gives them either a commendation or a criticism, and sometimes both, as we'll see in Ephesus today. And after that, the letter goes on into exhortation, an exhortation, an appropriate exhortation. An exhortation is just a call to action. Here's what I want you to do. It's an urging. And these exhortations in the letters are usually a call to repent or to persevere or both. And then finally, there's the awe-inspiring conclusion. At the end of every letter, Jesus finishes with an offer of eternal blessing to those who overcome. And we're going to look at overcome. So some themes are going to come up every week, every letter, you're going to see this thing. To, to those who have ears, let them hear. Okay, listen to what I'm saying. To those who overcome, those who are victorious. Keep your, keep your eyes open as you read these letters and keep your ears open. A good thing to do over the, over the summer is just to, to read these. It's only, you know, it's only two chapters. You can read these in 10 minutes a day. Um, and, and just get really, really familiar with the structure and the outline of these places and these letters that Jesus is writing. But finally then, before we get into looking at our first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus, um, why study these? Why are we doing this series? Well, Jesus is writing to these seven historic churches, right? And he's writing, as we've seen, he's writing to all churches. He's writing to us. These churches are, are kind of representative of all churches, and so, of course, it makes sense to study it. But not only that, we're living in a world and a time when uh, the world is becoming more and more secular, right? Religion is, religion is weird. Religion is strange. Religion is even persecuted, even in our society. There's, uh, there's a clear anti-religion agenda. Freedoms of religious belief and, and freedom of speech are, are being challenged all the time. And in the eyes of the world, the church looks weak and insignificant and, and irrelevant and prejudiced. And, and even worse, the, the church seems wrong and archaic. And so it's in these times that we need the evaluation of Jesus. We need his encouragement. We need him to tell us, Lord, what are the dangers that we're in danger of falling into? And how can we overcome these things? How can we persevere in the faith? 
And so this is why we're studying these letters now. So that's where we're at, and hopefully that's kind of given you a bit of a platform to, to, as we go through. Please don't worry about terminology and symbolism. We'll, we'll explain these as we go through. Um, but, but over the weeks, you're, you're going to become familiar with, with some of this Revelation language. Um, I know that people get a bit squirrely when you start reading Revelation because it's a bit weird. Um, but, it, but it's still the Word of God. It's still God speaking to us as church. He loves you, and he has things to say to you this morning. Um, so let me pray, uh, and then we'll dive into Revelation chapter 2. Father, we need your help. Um, we need your help to understand some of the different language of Revelation. But more than that, Lord, we need uh, your help uh, to understand and to hear your voice. Lord, I pray that we would be like sheep listening to the shepherd's voice this morning. Um, speak to our hearts, and may we uh, not just hear what you have to say, but may our lives be changed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, I wonder, do you know anyone right now who's in love? Like, and I, when I say in love, I don't mean like me and Haley in love, like being married for a while. I mean like, you know that new annoying in love? When they're talking to you and they're like touching each other? Do you know that thing? Or maybe like you're chatting and then they just kiss or something? Do you know people like that? It's really annoying. If that's you, great, knock yourself out, but I probably won't talk to you for a while. Um, but it's annoying it's annoying, but it's obvious, right? It's really obvious when someone is like that. It's really obvious. Wow, that person is in love. They keep talking about this person. They're smiling all the time. They're joyful. They bounce into rooms. It's annoying, but it's obvious. It's easy to tell when someone's in love. But over time, love can get cold. Love can grow cold, can't it? I'm sure that you all, as much as you have known someone who's in love like that, you've probably all known two people who are in a loveless marriage or a cold marriage. It seems like two people who just live in the same house and that's it. Two people who maybe raise kids together and, and that's it. It's sad. And this is what has happened to the church in Ephesus as Jesus writes to them. They had fallen out of love, right? They were, they were the loveless church. They had strengths, yes, and Jesus encourages them in that, but, but they lacked love. They had bravely stood up for truth, and they had held sound doctrine in the face of immense pressure, more than we face here. But Jesus, when he looks at this church, he sees a church that lacks love. And this is the church that he, he's writing to. Uh, the, the ancient city of Ephesus, where the, the Ephesian church is based, um, it was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia, right? It was essentially the, the New York City of ancient Asia, of ancient Turkey. It, all the major trading routes came through there. It had a big harbor that brought goods from all over the world. Um, but not only that, um, it was a, a center of idolatry, okay? So it was famous for its worship of the Greek uh, goddess of fertility, Artemis, or her Roman name is Diana. Um, there was a big temple dedicated to, to Artemis, it was one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. So we have a picture of what it would have looked like here, I think. Do we? There we go. That's what it, it's ruins now, and you can still go and see it, but this is what it would have looked like. Really impressive, massive structure. So the platform that was built on was 100,000 square feet. Uh, it was 420 feet long, 220 feet wide. There were 127 marble pillars, 127, and 36 of those were covered, I guess the ones around the outside, were covered in gold and jewels. And so you can still go and see it today. But uh, there were thousands of, of priests and priestesses who would have served in this temple, and many of them were, were temple prostitutes. 
She was the, 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 the goddess of fertility. And but not only was there this kind of idolatry, there was emperor worship going on too. So the Roman emperor was revered in those times and, 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 he, and he had godlike status. So you were expected to worship the emperor. Now he didn't mind sharing power because there were hundreds of gods that they worshipped. But he was treated like a deity and it was normal to pray to him. And if you didn't do that, you were seen as, as, a, as an outcast and you were given a hard time for it. And even under other emperors, you were persecuted and put to death for it. And no doubt people in this church that Jesus was writing to died because they loved Jesus. But, the, the, but Ephesus was also full of the occult, right? There was magic and cults and, and superstition. And so it, basically what we're trying to point out is that it was a really difficult place to be a Christian. Christians were ostracized. They were seen as weird. They were persecuted for not worshiping the emperor. Every day, can you imagine every day and going to work, walking past this, seeing people worshiping this huge, imposing thing. Every day being ostracized. Every day being seen as an outcast. Every day uh, being criticized for not practicing magic. The city wasn't even remotely Christian. There was no Christian culture. This church but was, was planted about 30 years before this letter that Jesus writes by Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. Um, so you can read about that in Acts chapter 18 and 19. It's a really, really interesting story. What happens is Paul goes there, Priscilla and Aquila are there, and Paul starts preaching the gospel, and then a riot happens. And the riot happens because people start following Jesus, right? Their hearts are captured by Jesus. And so uh, one of the things that happened, they stop buying these many statues of gods. And so the silversmiths who make these statues and sell them for loads of money, they start losing money, and they go mad, and a riot starts because people give up idolatry to worship Jesus. Paul was the pastor of this church for a while. Then Timothy was. You can read about this in Paul's letters to Timothy. And then later on, as we've seen, John was the pastor too. It has a really great heresy. Really, or heresy? No, really great legacy as a church. Are you trying to tell me something, Lord? And lots of churches were planted out of the Ephesian church. And so it's kind of like the mother church of this region. And so it's here that Jesus sends his first letter. And he starts with, with, as we've seen, this authoritative introduction. This should be our first point there, Tim, on the screen. Look at verse 1 with me. Keep your Bible open, chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is how Jesus introduces himself in this letter. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven lampstands. Now, if you're anything like me and you read that, you might say, what is going on? This is really weird stuff. We're talking about angels and stars and lampstands. Well, he's saying something like this. The angel, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. He's writing to the angel of the church. Now, the angel is symbolic of the church itself. So scholars kind of debate over what this actually means. Some people, some people who are wrong think that it was the pastor, right? Or the, 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 church is the, or the angel of the church is the pastor. Now, that, we know that's against what the Bible would say. Um, other people would say that it's, the angel is symbolic of the church itself. It's kind of like the spirit of the church, the predominant spirit of the church, if you like. Uh, I, I think... Uh, from reading Revelation, uh, angel is always a supernatural being. And I, I think it's something more like the, the angel of the church is the, is the representative angel or the guardian angel of that church. 
I mean, is it really so hard to believe that, that God would have an angel to take care of us? We read this in Ephesians, that, that, or in Hebrews, that, that actually there are, the angels are tasked with, with, with caring for and ministering to the believers. And so we shouldn't dismiss this idea too badly or too quickly. And then um, if we read chapter 1, we see the seven stars that he's holding in his hand. Uh, they, they actually represent the seven angels. The, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the lampstands are the seven churches themselves. Because remember, when we studied Sermon on the Mount, we are salt and light. We, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. We, we, we shine like a city on a hill. And so we're referred to, the churches are, are referred to as a lampstand. And so we put those things together. We get something like this. Let's not, sorry, I just want to say, don't get too hung up on all the symbolism. You can, you can get the message of this without understanding the significance of, of every symbol. Imagine if you uh, uh, phone up uh, your car insurance company to you know, renew your car insurance and they ask you to spell your name and, and Mr. Smith said it's S for, S for Santa, um, M for money, I for igloo, T for TV and H for honey. And, and the guy says, sorry, what did the H stand for? It doesn't really matter what the H stands for because you've already know what it's H. You already know what it says. And so it's possible for us to, to, to get the message of these without getting too hung up on the symbolism. But saying that, we're going to explain as much of the symbolism as possible as we go through. So we put those things together. We get something like this. Jesus says, write to the church of Ephesus and tell them that these are the words of the one who holds the churches in his hands and who walks among his church. In other words, Christ cares and Christ is there. That's what he's trying to say. Jesus in his introduction, he's saying, listen, I hold your church in my hand and I actually walk among your church. Jesus himself holds us in his hand. Isn't that incredible? We can't be snatched away because the resurrected, ruling Jesus, go home to your homework today is to go back and read Revelation chapter 1. And see the vision of Jesus that's given there. This is the resurrected ruling Jesus. And he holds us in his hand. Nobody can snatch us away. He's with us. And he walks among us. Every church that Jesus purchased with his own blood is, is precious to him. And so you know what that means for us? For this church? It means that Christ is with us. Isn't that encouraging? Jesus, before he even says, this is what you're doing wrong. This is what you're doing right. He says, I am with you. Jesus is our sustainer. He's our protector. He's in our midst. And listen, the church isn't perfect, is it? Because it's full of people. If you want to know if your church is perfect, ask yourself, are you perfect? And you'll have your answer. And by the way, if you say, yes, I am perfect, then that's a lie. You're lying to yourself. You're not perfect. But here's the thing. No matter how hard it gets, Jesus never gives up in his church. And he never tells us to give up in his church either. He loves us, and he's, he's actually freed us uh, at the cost of his own life. We are his bride, and he won us with his own life, and he's making us beautiful, and he is among us. And if you love Jesus, you won't give up on the church because that's where Jesus is. No matter what you think, no matter all the problems you have with the church, this is where Jesus is. Not this building, as John said, but this people. And when we go to eat lunch together later, Jesus is with us. He's walking among us. So let me ask you this, our first challenge of the morning. How do you feel about church? What, what do you think about the church? Do you love church? Do you love this family that you're part of? Because if you love Jesus, you'll love his church. 
Because he loved us so much that he died for us and gave himself up for us so that we could be a church. He's with us. He's present with us to bless us and to, and to rebuke us. He sees what we do. He hears what we say. He knows what you think and what's in our hearts. And this is a great comfort to us. But, but it should also make us a bit uncomfortable too, shouldn't it? Because after Jesus had given this authoritative introduction, he goes on to give the church his all-knowing evaluation. And that's our second point. Look at verses 2 to 4 with me in, in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus said to the church, he says, I know your works. Uh-oh. I know your works. Your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and find them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus says, I know. I know. Jesus knows every church. No church goes unnoticed by Jesus, no matter how big or how small. Jesus doesn't evaluate his churches and how many people are there. There are some big churches that are doing some really terrible things and some tiny churches that are doing some really great things and vice versa, by the way. But he knows us. Jesus knows village, right? He knows us. He knows all the good things about us and he knows all the bad things about us. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14 uh, uh, we get this picture of Jesus having, um, having eyes like a flame of fire, which represents his penetrating vision, his penetrating insight. There's no nook or cranny that he doesn't see, right? He never has to look again. So in football, they've just introduced VAR, video assistant referee, and it is a nightmare. Um, but the referee can miss something or, or need a second guess, and so he goes to the screen and can have people tell him, Jesus never has to use VAR. He never has to do that. His, his gaze reaches everything. He knows his children so deeply and so well. And so when we're evaluating our church, and when we're considering what we think about our church, we need to measure it with Jesus' standards, don't we? Right? Not our feelings. Because I'll tell you this, my feelings on any given day about church change, right? Some days I'm frustrated, some days I'm elated, and you're all the same. But Jesus never changes, and his standards never change. He sees beneath the surface, he sees our hearts. And that's why, I'll tell you this, if you're new to Village or you're still getting to know us, in Village, spiritual growth will always have priority over numerical growth. Always. We'd rather have a church of 30 committed believers than a church of 300 just churchgoers. Jesus leads this church and he's our shepherd and me and the other elders and John and Thomas and, and, and Lucas, we're just under shepherds being led by him. And we have to give an account to Jesus someday about his church, not anyone else. And so we strive to, to go deep and not wide in that sense. We strive for spiritual depth. By the way, it's terrifying for me to say that <laughs> because Jesus knows his church, doesn't he? And when he evaluates this church in Ephesus, uh, he has both a commendation and a correction, right? He commends them for three things. There's three things that they're done well and Jesus is pleased with them and he says, hey, 
I want to commend you for what you're doing here. Firstly, he commends them for their works. He says, you haven't been lazy. You haven't grown weary. Right? They've, they've preserved this sound doctrine and they've stood up for truth. They haven't fallen into heresy. Uh, even in a city that was like, as we saw on the screen, full of idolatry and a cult, they hadn't d- given up on doing good works. Even though they were persecuted for it, they had kept going. And secondly, this is what Jesus says. He commends them for their patient endurance, right? So in a time and a place when, when Rome, the emperor, regulated who you worship and how you worship, they had to pay homage to the emperor. They had to visit the emperor's temples and pray to the emperor. But even in the face of all this, the church in Ephesus had remained faithful. Amazing. And Jesus says in, in verse 3 that they're bearing up for, for, for my name's sake. Everything they were doing was for the name of Jesus and this incredible encouragement that he gives them. And thirdly, he commends them for their commitment to sound doctrine. They, they didn't bear with false teachers, even when in verse 16 we see these Nicolaitans come among them, right? And Jesus says, I, Jesus says, I commend your intolerance to, to, to these false teachers, these Nicolaitans who come among them, they're people who came along and they, and they, they were claiming to be apostles. So they were claiming to be like Paul and John and, and Peter and Andrew and all these uh, apostles. And they were t- preaching and teaching them that they could actually, well, you can have a little bit of Christianity and still probably worship Diana. Or you can be involved in some idolatry and some. You can just kind of blend into the culture more and you'll be fine. <laughs> but they haven't. They, they, the... The Ephesians have tested those who call themselves apostles and and are not. And he's found them to be false. So Jesus says, you guys have done a really, really good job at this. And we want to be known by Jesus as people who love the truth, don't we? That's why we preach the truth. That's why we sing the truth. That's why we practice the truth. It's one of the things that the Ephesian church was commended for. And so if it's something that pleases Jesus... It's probably something that we want to do. That's what we want to strive for. We don't compromise on, on, the, on the truth. Sound doctrine is important. Now, let, let me explain what I mean by that. Because the word, the word doctrine, that simply means um, what we believe and teach about God. Okay, That's what doctrine means. Um, and it's important because doctrine is from Scripture. Right? It informs us of what Scripture says on certain things. And so uh, we learn doctrine. Uh, when we learn doctrine, we're learning uh, what the Bible actually says. And so it's really, really important. Doctrine is important not because, um, not because, inf- not because it saves us, but because it informs us of, of what our relationship with God is like and how it works. And we really want to know what we believe and why we believe it. And the Ephesian church had sound doctrine. They had worked hard and had not given up defending truth. And Jesus is pleased with them for it. And here's the point. Here's the point of encouragement. Jesus notices our work. He notices your work. Whatever hardship and trial and effort you're going through for his name's sake, he notices it and he's pleased with it. Maybe, Maybe you feel like nobody notices what you do. But he knows. Jesus knows. So maybe no one sees you caring for your elderly neighbor. But Jesus sees. He knows. Maybe no one sees you sharing the gospel day in, day out with with that, that friend at work. No one sees that. But Jesus sees. And maybe no one sees how you, you bring up your kids and how you are in your home. 
teaching your kids to know Jesus and to love them and to be kind and, and, and all those kinds of things. But Jesus sees and he's pleased with you because of that. Jesus notices our work. Isn't that incredible? And he's pleased with us. I think so often we think that, that Jesus isn't pleased with us, that we're not doing enough. But he sees what you do in his name. And he's pleased with you. And that's his commendation. But there was also a correction for the church in Ephesus. Verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you, have ha- you had at first. This is a church that, for the last 30-odd years, have been working tirelessly in the name of Jesus, defending truth in the face of incredible opposition. Good job. But in the process, they'd forgotten love. They'd forgotten love. What had happened? I mean, this is the church that when Paul wrote to them in Ephesians, back when Paul was still alive, Paul's most likely dead by this point, but, but, but Paul wrote to them in Ephesians chapter 1, you can actually read uh, what he says to them, and he says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. This was a church that was characterized by faith in Jesus and love for each other. So, so what had happened? It seems like they had spent so much time fighting for truth that they had just become hard and callous and forgotten to love. And Jesus says, looks at them and says, I, I love all this stuff that you're doing, but where is the love? Didn't know I was going to reference Black Eyed Peas this morning, but there you go. <laughs> but we all know Christians who love to fight, don't we? Right? One of the most depressing, the most depressing thing on my Twitter feed is Christians going at each other in a public sphere over minutia of what they believe and doing it without love and doing it without grace. We all know Christians who, who, are, who are, are so keen to, to defend truth, but they do it in a way that, that, that is just completely loveless. Doctrine and truth are vitally important, but they have to go hand in hand with love, don't they, right? And we need to be mindful of this in the way that we interact with each other. We are a family and we love each other. We're we're telling this to to Finley right now because Abigail is 18 months and he's five and he can just pick her up and do all kinds of silly things. So we say, no, this is your sister. You love her. We have to be gentle, be kind with her. And we need to remember that our motivation is to win people, not win arguments. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I love that this, this, um, this passage is always read in, in, uh, in weddings. This great passage about love. And he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And this is what has happened to the Ephesian church. They had forgotten about their love for Jesus and their love for each other. You see, love for Jesus and love for each other go hand in hand together. You can't have one without the other. This church used to love each other. The last word of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is, that grace be with all who love Christ with love incorruptible. But they had grown to love truth more than they love God or others. So let me ask us, is that us? Is that you? Are you more interested in in truth than you are about loving other people? You see, just because you have a great past, there's no guarantee of a great future as a church. And we have this great heritage coming, being planted out of village. And, 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 And just because we have that great start doesn't guarantee that we won't go off the rails. It doesn't guarantee that we won't take the wrong path. 
And we need to be aware that the Christian life is about loving Christ and loving others. And being a faithful church for us is about loving Jesus and loving each other. We need to be aware of, of becoming that church that has all the right answers, has all the right doctrine, and the right gospel, the right theology, but without a, a rich fellowship with Jesus and a deep love for each other. Uh, Tony Morita, one of my teachers in this passage, he put it this way. He says, without love, our labor as a church is drudgery. Our endurance is joyless. Our theology produces arrogance. But... With love, our labor is passion, our endurance is joyless, and our theology produces humility and compassion. Isn't that incredible? Because when you love someone, uh, labor becomes easy. We see this all over the Bible. We see Jacob, when he wanted to marry Rachel, he had to work for seven years, and the seven years felt like days because he was in love with her, right? I have no interest in dance whatsoever, but every Saturday night between September and Christmas, you will find me on the sofa watching Strictly. Why? Because I'm married to someone who loves dance. And it's easy because I love her. And no, I kind of love it too, to be honest. But it's, the, it's the glitter. And when you love Jesus, you can't serve too much, right? When you're motivated by love, you can't give too much. When you love Jesus, you can't love his church too much. When you love, his, well, love Jesus, his people are a joy to be around. And, and it's easy to put their own needs before your own. So here's the challenge. What drives our labor? What drives our endurance? Because the answer to those questions reveals what we, where, where the place Jesus holds in our hearts. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. And we're coming towards the end. Thankfully, he doesn't stop with this, this evaluation. He gives in an appro appropriate exhortation. It's just a call to action. And in verse 5, he says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus has this passion for his church and he's not ready to walk away from them. So he calls them to remember where they've fallen from, to repent to stop doing it and to return to their first love. And it comes with this warning. If they don't change their ways, Jesus will remove their lampstand. And as we'll see this uh, as we go throughout, we're not going to get into depth today, but we'll see this throughout this series. That means that, that, that they will cease from being a church in God's eyes. Isn't that terrifying? That you can actually do all the things that a church might do, but God doesn't recognize you as a church. And this is the danger that the Ephesians are into if they don't change their ways. And so Jesus says, remember from where you've fallen. The people of Israel had to, were called to remember what God had done for them. The prodigal son, when he's far off and, and feeding pigs, he remembers that his father is full of goodness and loves him. You see, we need to remember so we can act. How many of us feel like we're just getting by in a walk with Jesus by maybe stuff that happened years ago? Maybe you feel like you're, you're, you're just eating, it's like the equivalent of eating stale bread. And maybe you feel like at one time you had this passionate love for Jesus, but it's, it's just a distant memory. It doesn't make sense. It's not real. And Jesus says this. If you're going through the motions, if you're just going through the motions, if you've lost your love, remember what it used to be like so that it can be like that again. Remember the times when you had passion and zeal so that you can have passion and zeal again. Remember that day when Jesus meant everything to you so that he can mean everything to you again. Remember the first love so you can have your first love back again. 
Remember what you need to get back to. And then repent. It's a decisive break. It's not just remembering and going, oh, this is awful. It's a a, a stop it. Jesus says, stop it. Turn away from what you're doing. And then he says, return. Return to your first love. Do the things you used to do when your love was passionate. Get back to loving Jesus. And so often we focus on what we should do or what we shouldn't do or what we do do and what we don't do and, and feeling guilty about all that stuff or what I'm supposed to do. And we've just forgotten it's about love. It's about loving Jesus. And, and your Christian life is always going to feel like a drag if you've forgotten love. You have no joy. And so Jesus says, remember this, repent and return. Allow him to fill you with joy. Allow him to show you the joy in your life no matter what your circumstances are. It's just about loving him and loving each other in whatever capacity God puts you in. Some of us, are, are, some of us are going to go on to be Billy Graham and preach to millions. Some of us are going to preach to our neighbor, one person our whole lives. And both of those are equally valid if we do them with love in the name of Jesus. It's incredible. We don't give up on truth, but we need truth and love. Tony Morita again says that the goal is an informed mind and an inflamed heart. An informed mind and an inflamed heart. And when our minds know the truth and our hearts are in love with Jesus, then we will labor because we love Christ and love other people. We will endure because we love Christ and love people. Then we will stand up for truth because we love Christ and love people. And so kind of two of the big dominant themes this week, it seems like, have been Pride Month and and abortion with with stuff maybe happening in in Westminster tomorrow. And listen, it's okay and good and right that we take a stand for truth and we should and I want to encourage you to do that. But we do it with love. Those two go hand in hand together. And just so you know about this aside, it's perfectly possible to love someone and hold a different opinion to them, Okay. And we've forgotten how to do that. And then finally, Jesus finishes his letter to this church. This church that he walks among and loves so much with this awe-inspiring conclusion. Let's read verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Wow. Uh, Jesus finishes all these letters the same way, um, with these words about hearing and about conquering, okay? So Jesus says, if you can hear me, then you should listen, okay? There's a difference between hearing and listening. You know whenever you're not listening in a conversation and someone says, did you hear what I said? And you're able to repeat the last few words, but you have no idea what they said. They have no idea what they want. I'm guilty of that a lot. Jesus says, don't do that. You should listen and take this on board. Don't let these words just pass over your head. Hear the promise that comes from the Lord Jesus who walks among you. And he says, the one who conquers. Right? The, the Greek word here for conquer is nikaio, right? It, it means victory. It means overcome. It's where Nike comes from, Nike. Nike is the Greek god of victory. Um, and that's why they named the trainers after. So we're to hear his words and have victory. To the, one who, to the one who overcomes lovelessness, here's my promise to you. If you need to remember your love this morning, if you've forgotten that, then this is what Jesus says to you. He says, you will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Jesus is saying, don't give up your work and don't give in to temptation. Get back to loving again because look what I have in store for you. You're going to eat the tree of the tree of life. You will be in paradise. You will be in the very presence of God forever. You see, when Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they, they, they gave up their access to paradise. They, they, they threw the tree of life away. Through sin and the fall, we've lost paradise. And now Jesus is promising us paradise regained. And the tree of life is, is the symbol for the source of eternal life. It's, it's, God's kind of, it's God's way of saying, when you're with me in paradise, it's paradise because he's there. There's this source of eternal life that's going to nourish you forever and ever and ever. And it's God's kind of life. It's true life. It's life without sin. It's life without pain. It's life without death. It's life without suffering. It's life without end. And this is what Jesus offers to us, our church. Hang in there. Keep going. Don't give up on the truth and remember your love. And our emotion to overcome these things is our eternal reward. Being in the presence of God forever. Jesus walks among his church. And he says, look who I am and, and, and look what I offer. And so when we're tempted to give up and we're tempted to give in, Jesus says, keep in mind the tree of life. Keep in mind the, 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 the paradise that awaits you, no matter what you're going through. And we've all, we've all well, you may have heard stories of, of, of amazing figures of the faith. Like you think of, um, like, uh, you know, Haley's favorite, Dr. Helen Roosevelt, the things she goes through in, in, in the Congo. Rape and all kinds of horrible things. And our, our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the promise of that reward, eternal life. Bodily death is nothing compared to eternal life. And Jesus says, how can, listen, how can you not love the one who makes it possible for you to be in paradise? We're his bride. Jesus loves his bride and he keeps wooing his bride. He keeps, he keeps showing his, his love. He says, look at this paradise. And he woos us with the bread and the wine. He says, look, this is my kindness to you. This is our moment of intimacy together. I'm showing you what is to come. So how do we overcome lovelessness? How do we remember our first love? Well, we need to look to Jesus, don't we? The Bible says that, that we love because he first loved us. And how did he love us? Well, Romans 5 says that he demonstrated his love for us by dying for us while we were still sinners. Jesus loved us when we didn't love him. He, he gave up his life for us when we were his enemies. So the cross is the ultimate sign of love, isn't it? That's how we overcome love, by looking to the cross. It's always about the gospel. Do you see yet? Every Sunday we're going to say this is always about the gospel. It's always about what the bread and wine represents. The cross is the symbol of ultimate love. Um, and what's really interesting is that um, the word cross is never used in the book of Revelation, but the word tree is used an awful lot. And in the New Testament, um, the, the cross of Jesus is, is often referred to as a tree. So, so 1 Peter 2.24, Peter, um, Peter says that, that Jesus took on our sin in his body on the tree. Acts uses that language loads of times as well. So here's what love looks like. If you go away with anything today, go away with this and just think about it all the time. Here's what love looks like. Jesus took on the tree of death so we could have the tree of life. 
Jesus took on the tree of death so we could have the tree of life. Jesus took on the tree that meant suffering and torture and being abandoned by God so that we could have the tree of life, which means an end of suffering, a fullness of life, and presence with God. Isn't that incredible? So let's remember our first love. Let's remember the love of Jesus. Let's be motivated by this love. Let's, one of the things we've been chatting about as elders is it feels like we're in this season of the church of, of abiding. We just need to remember to abide in his love. Just remember our first love. Let's abide in Jesus and be motivated by his love. And, and let's be known as a people who, yes, are committed to truth, but are in, in love for, with Jesus and with each other. We love because he loved us first. He took the tree of death so we could have the tree of life. Let, let me pray for us.